to this week's episode of Off the Shelf. Joining me today is Victoria Scott. She is someone who has so many commas after her job description. She's a novelist, journalist, lecturer, copywriter and media trainer with two decades of experience writing for online print, TV and radio outlets around the world. She is currently the lead tutor of the NCTJ Journalism Diploma at Sutton College in South London. Her debut novel is Patience, which I'm sure you've seen everywhere because I know I have. It will be published on the 5th of August, 2021. And I've just found out in my research for today that there will be a German translation coming in 2022. So welcome to the show, Victoria. Thank you very much. And yes, I do have lots of jobs. Um, I think it's called a portfolio career. So I do <laughs> lots of different things. I like to be busy um, and I like variety. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, don't we also, my understanding is you kind of started out uh, in the in the TV world, and then you've now moved across into into writing fiction. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, I think it would be fair to say that I've always written fiction. Definitely since I was, I could learn. I learned to write. Um, I've always loved to read. I used to write. I think pretty desperately bad poetry as a teenager. Um, I don't think that's ever going to see the light of day. Thank God. Um, <laughs> Uh, and journalism was something I always wanted to do. I did a postgraduate diploma in broadcast journalism, then went to work for Reuters and the BBC, Al Jazeera. Also, oh, just, um, just some small, small names we wouldn't have heard of. Small names. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, as a TV producer, so writing and editing and, and organising the news. And uh, I moved to the Middle East uh, in 2009 um following um my husband who who had a job out there and that was a really interesting time and I freelanced out there for all sorts of outlets and began writing fiction again which I'd put down and put you know meant in a mental box somewhere um for about a decade and I started again and I had this idea for a novel that I began when I had a little baby to look after and, and it's quite difficult to really focus with especially when they get older and they start rambling around uh, and I uh, sort of forgot about it sort of and then I hit 40 and suddenly thought you know what um, I need to think about what I'm going to do with the next two decades of my working life and I love writing and my husband encouraged me to do a creative writing course because I felt I needed some focus. And I did the Faber Academy for six months and finished what became Patience in that time. That's so, really interesting. I, yeah, so I'm, yeah. I'm really fascinated by people who write while doing other things because I'm similar to you. I've got a significant birthday coming up and that was really the, the catalyst for me setting up this podcast because... I had a significant birthday come up and I was thinking, what am I going to do? I mean, it's, I, I don't mind saying it's not 40. Um, <laughs> you're not as ancient as me. <laughs> um, and I thought, what, you know, I, same as you, I'd always, I love to read. I'd always like to write. Um, my day job is law, so slightly different writing, but, but similar in that you kind of use the, the, the verbal part of your brain. So when you had a small child, when you had a full-time job, how did you fit your writing around that? interesting conversation with someone the other day a little exchange of messages with the brilliant Louise Walters who runs her own small publishing in print but she's also a novelist in her own right and she provided me um uh, some time ago now with an editorial report on patients which really helped me hone it down um and she and I were talking about how actually we write better when we are busy 
I find it really mm. hard if I've got a whole week ahead of me and my kids are in school and my husband's at work and I've got all this time and actually I can't get down to it. I procrastinate. I feel that I can't crystallize my, you know, I've, I've got mm. all these hours, but actually I have a table in the corner of the kitchen. It's a, a, kind of a big kitchen, but it's a, it's a messy table. And I write on that most of the time in between making meals, uh, putting a wash on, um, going out for walks with the family, etc. And um, although I do have a writing shed in the garden, I also have a laptop that I use and I write in the car while I wait for my daughter to finish ballet. I use it on, on the train and I find concentrated periods of time and a feeling that I've got just got to do it now really motivates me. Whereas if I've got loads of time, I can't. So actually, I, I have bursts of creativity rather than five hours of sitting down writing. And I'm a, um, you know, that whole give a give a person busy person something to do trope is sort of true the more things I have the more um I think I've just got like adrenaline coursing through my veins and I'll get stuff done if I haven't got that adrenaline I don't get stuff done <laughs> and do you find so it sounds like you write a bit and then you have a gap um be it you know, I don't know loading the dishwasher taking your daughter to the ballet and do you find that downtime between writing periods helps your creativity yeah, I'll come back to it and I'll suddenly think, oh, actually, I should do that instead. And often ideas for plot changes come to me while I'm going for a walk or loading the dishwasher or having a shower. That's like the classic place. And you suddenly think, oh, yeah, actually, I should do that. Um, and so I think, it, I mean, everyone is different. And I know loads of authors who swear by, you know, segmenting time and having five hours every day between breakfast and lunch to do their writing and I get that it's just not for me I, I don't work that way and I've always I think TV news trains you to write really quickly hopefully really accurately um, and so that's I've carried that through so I do write really quickly mm. I have been known to bash out four or five thousand words in a day and my brain is just kind of fizzing and everything's just pouring out and it's like being in a sort of you um like you zoned out, like, like you're not there. You're almost a zombie. And you come out of that um, weird period of suspended animation and you're not really sure where you've been. Your brain is just so absorbed by what you're writing that nothing is going on around you. And I can write in noisy places. I can write on aeroplanes. You know, I can, and it, if I'm really in that zone, it doesn't matter what is going on around me. It's extraordinary, quite addictive and That's tiring. fascinating. Because... <laughs> Um, for listeners who haven't read Patience, I don't want to give spoilers away, but it's a very emotionally fraught subject matter. Mm. So I can see how you would sit down and get on a roll with it and, you know, bash out 4,000, 5,000 words in a day. But I just think I'd find it very difficult to dip in and out of something so um, intense, shall we say. Yeah, I can see that. I think it probably helps that I'm a really emotional person. And I've been a really emotional person always. Um, lots of tears as a kid, lots of tears as a grown up. Um, I'm definitely up and down. Um, God bless my husband. He's very tolerant. And uh, I I've channeled that. So I can feel still those teenage emotions. I can still feel how it felt for my first relationship to break up in my early 20s and thinking that, you know, that was the end of all you know everything I was yeah. never going to fall in love again um I, well, I so landed I, on your feet there <laughs> yeah hopefully um and I do notice that I 
I sort of, you know, I, I, I'm an em, empath. I, I think about how other people feel and I, and I do that a lot. So in a, in, when writing books, um, I put myself in that position and, and it feels real. And so I, you know, I can write down that, those feelings. Um, and I don't really even know where those characters come from. Um, they, 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 some patients landed fully formed. Obviously my brain's doing something, mm. um, jumbling up various, all the, you know, all the many thousands of people I've met over my lifetime and the conversations we've had <clears throat> and they come out and patients came out particularly vividly. Well, I, a question I was going to ask you, so for, for, uh, for listeners who haven't read the book, Patience is the title character. Um, so do you see yourself as Patience or as a mum, Patience's mum is in the book, her name is Louise. So do you see yourself as a Louise figure? You no, identify as one I of don't, the I don't see myself as either of them. I think the closest to me is Eliza, really. That is, um, again, for people who don't know much about the book, um, it was inspired by my sister Claire, who is severely disabled, has something called Rett syndrome, and Patience in the book has Rett syndrome, and her sister is Eliza. And the sibling experience, the experience of being a sibling of a disabled person, I, I haven't read that in in fiction, and I wanted to write that. So that's why Eliza is there as a grown up, you know, and she's been through, she's had her childhood with with Patience, and she's moved away. But actually, there's still lots of things that hang over, lots of responsibility and guilt and jealousy to a, to a certain extent that Eliza experiences. So that's probably the closest to me. Um, although she she has quite a few other things going on that don't have anything to do with me, but but probably that's what I relate to the most. But I interviewed my mum as well for the book, so her experience of being a parent has come into Louise's personality. Certainly, the experiences that she has and the fact that people find her oh difficult, you know, because she pushes so hard. My mum pushed very hard because she had to, mm. and, and so that's all. It's certainly inspired by true life, although a lot of the the stuff is entirely fictional as well. Well, they do um, say you should write what you know. Mm-hmm, they do, and that's kind of what I did. <laughs> um, because when you're starting out and you uh, are trying to, for the first time, to put a plot and characterization together, it does help if if it's rooted in something that that you know, so you can um, pull it out easily from your box of tricks, I guess. Yeah, I can see what you mean, and obviously, I hope listeners go out and all buy Patience because it's an amazing <laughs> book. So moving on to the books you've chosen. Uh, so the first book you've chosen is the book that you first remember being read to you. So please mm-hmm. tell us which book you've chosen and why. It is uh, um, Peace at Last by Jill Murphy, who wow. um, this book, I, I mean, I, I bought my children a copy. <laughs> as well, you I do was going to say, I'm, I hope you don't mind me saying a bit younger than you. And even I remember this being read to me. So I think it's just ubiquitous. Yeah, it must be. It's obviously still in print. Um, it's got the most beautiful pictures. So for those who haven't read it, haven't haven't had it read to them, um, there's Mummy Bear and Daddy Bear and Baby Bear and Daddy Bear, bless him, cannot get to sleep. And everyone is sleeping around him and he goes through various parts of the house and the, the, the clock's ticking or the tap's dripping. He ends up in the car, but then the, then the birds start making a noise outside. And he's, he's just really grumpy. But the pictures, it's the sort of 1950s house, I think, a bit like the house yeah. in the snowman, if you've seen that um, illustration. So mother's sleeping in a hairnet with her bare ears. Um, and uh, it's just, and there's a, a lovely big grandfather clock. It's gorgeous to look at. 
and I told my mum that I'd picked this book and she said oh I used to love reading you that book <laughs> you know and that's why that's why I love it because she loved it um it's just mm. wholesome I think I've just got those memories of sitting in bed with my mum and my sister who she and I shared a room um listening to that tale and it takes you back to those warm family moments it really and does I and I looked this book up because like I said I was it was read to me as a child so I was thinking when was it published if, if you've also chosen it and it was published in 1980 so that means it must have been in print for 40 years and that's yeah amazing. so it was in it was um I'll give my age away that was two years after I was born so that's why it was obviously probably a bestseller when I was a kid mm. um and now it's obviously still doing the rounds and I'm really glad because classic children's books really and it's I think it's really hard to crystallize what makes a great children's book and it's definitely I suppose a marriage of really lovely words with great images yeah and it really I does that. Say, I think you've touched on it the pictures in the book book are really great and I think if people are listening to this thinking I don't know that book google it look at the cover and I'm, I guarantee you will recognize it I guarantee yeah I think so and you'll love reading it to your kids because it's also really short which when you've got children and you really want them to go to bed you don't want to be reading some enormous book yeah, exactly. <laughs> so actually it's perfect length with lovely pictures yeah so moving on the next book you've chosen is a book by your favorite author and I'm going to kind of preempt you here and say that um the author that you've chosen is Jodie Pickle and I found that really interesting because I think in my, well it's just my opinion you could tell me if I'm wrong your work is a bit similar to Jodie's in that you tackle very intense issues that are, are very, really thorny and ethical and current and I can completely see why she's your favorite author yeah no um you're absolutely right there um I have adored her ever since I read I think her first book was Sal that I read was Salem Falls which was probably sometime in the 90s mm. I deeply admire her. I think she has tackled some really hard issues really gently. And I mean, actually doing it with the light touch that she does is mm. it's, it looks, I think to read it, you think this is a really easy read, that whole easy read idea. And it's not, it's really, really hard to do. And she does great research and she makes you care. And the book um, I chose, uh, my favorite of hers is, is Plain Truth. Um, which is about um, the Amish, okay, yeah. is Plain Truth, which is about the Amish in America, and they live in the most extraordinary, so they basically live in the 19th, early 19th century, I think, mm. they don't have any electricity, they don't have medical care, modern medicine, they, um, they have a, a very strict dress code, and in this book, um, an Amish baby dies, and it's born out of wedlock, and um, there's a big court case, as there usually is in her books, mm. um, where um, they're, they're trying to figure out whether the, the mother of this baby um, can be found culpable for this baby's death. And she's a young teenage woman um, who has, uh, is struggling with the Amish way of life. And Jodie just puts you in there. She introduces you to the lawyer as well and, and the mother and the different perspectives. And um, she does what, I try to do and have tried to do and hopefully have achieved which is to ch show you um, explore a really big thorny issue through um, some really compelling characters you know a group of characters who are going through this thing which kind of takes the lid off something that's big 
and, and, and crystallizes it down and, and makes you, as I say, really relate to those people. So my second book, which is called Grace and is out next year, um, is about fostering to adopt and the number of babies who are being removed at birth in the UK and um, why that might be and why that might be a problem. But also, so you've got one uh, young woman who's, whose baby's being removed and a couple who are desperate to adopt who are given that baby. And then there's a tussle in court over who gets to keep that baby. Mm. Um, and I've done, so that will probably sound a bit like one of Jodie's books as well, because I guess I'm hoping that I will become, be seen as the British Jodie, because that's what I want. I want to explore some of these things that keep me awake at night, issues that I've written about in journalism that really matter, I think. And I think fiction helps people, gives the people a way into those topics, a um, an entertaining and educational, I suppose, although I hope my books don't, don't sound like I'm lecturing. But you know what I mean? Like you learn something, but also you really enjoy it while you're while you're doing that. And that's what I'm setting out to do. So for your first book, obviously, you said it's based a lot on, on personal experience, but you did interview your mum. So for your second book, this is obviously, I assume, something which is outside of your personal knowledge. So did you do a lot of research for that? Yeah, I, I did. Um, one of my friends um, uh, fostered to adopt a baby um, who eventually went back to the birth parents. And that really kind of set me off. Mm. And another of my friends, the amazing journalist Louise Tickle, has done a lot of work covering the family courts, which are, are very hidden in the UK. There's, there's no usual reporting of these um, and the plight of lots of women whose babies are being removed. So I took those two things. I interviewed both of those people. Um, I also interviewed a judge, a family court judge, uh, to really get a feel of how these, how these court sessions went. I watched some mock-ups of um, family courts because you can't uh, get in, they're not public. Yeah, um, as long-term listeners will know, my day job is law. I don't do family law because I, I'm a bit like you, and I'm an empath. I don't think I could cope day day in day out. I mean, much respect to the people that do, but I I couldn't. And family courts are very complex, and a, a lot of them are concerned with what's best for the child involved. Um, and as a result, a lot of them are, like you said, held behind closed doors because it's not good for the child who could maybe get to 18, type their name into Google, and it'll be a matter of public record. So. Mm. Yeah, no, it's a really thorny issue. It's very difficult. But equally, I do think there are um, there's a lot of evidence that um, babies are often being removed without support really being given to the the parents. Um, but equally, I think uh, in in my friend's case, I think she and her husband were really treated badly by the system. Um, they really wanted to adopt a child and, and they were not given the information that they needed. So I try to put those two points of view across and for people to really care about both sides and then desperately care what happens to that baby so um that's grace which is my next one so as you see there's a theme emerging uh, of um of issues big issues but hopefully with a, a light enough touch that people really enjoy reading them as well yeah and i was listening to you speak about um the jodie book that you've chosen the one that i've read of hers and and loved it was actually recommended to me by one of my first guests on the podcast who's my friend molly shout out to molly is uh small great things and it's a similar mm -hmm. vein there's a, a a baby which who sadly dies um and it's all to do with um a, a, you know a big court case about this baby's death but it touches on the issues of race because the uh i believe she's the midwife um is uh, of she's an ITU nurse I think isn't she or yeah, a midwife she's, yeah she's of African-American heritage um, and the family of the baby are not and it's set in America and it's again like you said it touched on those thorny issues that 
you just can't you can't know what you would do until you were in that situation no and that sort of thing fascinates me Mm. you know where there really isn't necessarily a right or wrong and with gene therapy in patients which is at the core of the book um there isn't I don't think a right or wrong is certainly not a black and white or white issue Mm. whether you would or you wouldn't end your child and if you did what would happen you know to me um it it kept me awake at night that sort of question and and that for me is a great the nub of a great story that that's where you something you can work with Mm. um so where those big questions pop up in life for me is where I start when I think about writing book and taking the theme of big questions and moving on the next book you've chosen is the book um which you know was given to you as a gift and I have to say I love this book I recommend it to everyone so Mm. take it away and tell us which book it is it's Invisible Women by Caroline Criado Perez. It's so um, good. It is extraordinary and angry making. Um, I got it for Christmas one year and I read it in the week between Christmas and New Year's Eve. I just swallowed it. It was It's amazing. My husband gave it to me. Um, he's very supportive of my, my feminism. Um, and I, wow, the medical chapter in particular, mm. I've been talking to quite a few people about recently. It was something that popped up in the press. Um, it was a really good um, bit of um, attention sort of uh, drawn to uh, the fitting of coils in women and how actually there aren't, isn't any pain relief um, given for yes, of coils. And, uh, which And it's absolutely agonizing uh, for a lot of women. And Caroline in the book looks at the medical things like the fact that um, uh, the loads of drug trials are only trialed on men and not on women yeah. because they can't be bothered to accommodate for hormonal differences. I was so they... shocked when I read that thinking mm-hmm. we can't have got to, I think it was 2018 when I read it or 2019. I think we can't have got to now and that's still the case. I it's know. Outrageous. So drugs, you know, often have a big, a big difference mm. for women who, who have hormonal fluctuations and the fact that um, the uh, the erectile dysfunction pill, um, which will come to me, Viagra, uh, Viagra was uh, originally, uh, they discovered it was really great for period pain, but then they discovered it sorted erectile dysfunction out. So they did that instead. Yeah, much so more lucrative. Yeah, so we've still got grim period pain every month um, and, and aren't given that drug because they made more money selling it to men who needed erections. And so... Um, the whole of that medical chapter, my draw was sort of, my, my jaw was dropping, kind of going, that is just, you know, you just can't believe that um, scientific research doesn't, and also the amount of funding or lack of for women's problems. Mm-hmm. So that's where I'm thinking of, you know, that there isn't, there hasn't been enough research done and the pain that women experience with things like coil insertion and the fact that maybe just some gas and air would help, <laughs> or um, they don't really know a lot about pelvic pain that women experience and why that might be and 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 you look into it and no one's really done any research because there isn't that much money for it and the whole thing is deeply unfair and as I say it makes you a bit cross that book but it is it's so um it makes it you know it just it just pulls the scales off your eyes Mm. I think I I mean we need that we need to still keep fighting the battle is not over yeah, listeners can't see, but I am aggressively nodding along. It, it, it's one of those books, it's so well researched, it's so well written, and it will make you furious, but in a good way. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree, and I could not recommend that book that book enough. Um, so let's quickly move on, because nothing we say will do that book justice. <laughs> so the book with your favourite character in, please tell us which book you've chosen and why. 
Oh, Murder on the, on the Orient Express by the brilliant Agatha Christie, who I fell in love with as a teenager. And my read is a massive fan. And I, my mum would rave about her books. And I was just thinking, she can't be that good. You know, there's loads of <laughs> murder mystery type books. But obviously, <laughs> she's the original, you know, the queen. So I did read one of hers, uh, Death on the Nile, actually. And <laughs> it was just, you see why she's, she's the queen. I do love Death on the Nile. That's yeah. one. That's my. That's my second favorite. Mm. Some, you know, I think she got to the point where she was just writing because she she was selling books. But and some of them are just not as inspirational as others. Some of them are a bit more sort of paint by numbers. But um, the earlier ones, Murder on the Orient Express, which has been made into TV and film many times, so many times, brilliant, has mm. a brilliant conclusion, which I will not tell you if you haven't seen it, although it's very clever. Um, my favourite adaptation, actually, is the ITV adaptation, uh, not the recent Kenneth Branagh film, but the um, the ITV adaptation, which is quite dark, which has Poirot wrestling with his Catholic guilt and has a stoning of a woman who's had an affair in, uh, I think they're in Istanbul at the beginning. Um, and it's really there is some grittiness and grimness to it, which there isn't in, in Agatha Christie's original, but I think it looks at, again, favourite character. He's hilarious, Poirot, but I think the idea that he's got depth that we don't know about, because I think Agatha Christie's many things, but actually her characterisation is not her, it's not her big thing. Her plots are extraordinary and the pace is amazing. Um, but in Poirot, she created a guy who, although she doesn't go out of her way to tell you his backstory, you can sort of guess at it. And yeah. he's got his little affectations and his obsession with cleanliness and tidiness. He's obviously got OCD and you wonder why that is, what happened in his youth. Um, and he, um, yes, yeah, so people raise their eyes at him and that's one of the fun things about him. But of course he's, he's like superior to them all. And he kind of, but he loves himself as well, which is really funny. So he, he doesn't have any, um, he's not embarrassed by his brilliance. Yeah. You know? He tells everyone. <laughs> and so like that's that really about, I like that about Poro. Everyone writes him off, but he always comes through in the end and everyone always seems really surprised. That yes, absolutely. And, and, and with the Orient Express, the glamour of the train, yeah. the gothic kind of darkness of the weather and the snow snowing them in. She's so good at that. Yeah, um, I've actually only, I think I've only seen the Kenneth Branagh adaption. I haven't seen the the ITV version so maybe I should definitely that. watch that you would be impressed um yeah. Kenneth Branagh's is a little bit a little bit light although the cast is amazing mm. obviously and the um, costumes are also great mm -hmm. mm. I mean it's it's um it it the idea that that whole locked room thing that you're all stuck in a snowdrift and it's got to be someone on the train it's all very mm. exciting um that's what she's so good at the, yeah, um, and like you said, her pacing is just amazing mm, and the way she buries things that you don't realise they're relevant till 100 pages later. Yeah, I never guessed the ending of an Agatha Christie. and I only guess them now because I've probably seen them all on TV <laughs> about 10 yes, times. Yes, I'm, exactly. I know what happens. Yeah, so I would say Death on the Nile and Murder on the Orient Express and the um, Murder of Roger Ackroyd, which was, I think, her mm. first, is also to be recommended. Very clever. Um and you do not see that twist coming. Yeah, and I really like, so um, she writes another de uh, detective, I suppose you'd call her uh, Miss Marple, and adaptions mm. of th those series of books are always on ITV, and I always watch Oh, Miss Marple I love too. And again, yeah. yeah, she's like the plucky underdog. She's this batty looking woman who everyone, 
um, thinks is not going to, you know, be worth anything. And then she turns out to know passing on the police always, mm. you know. <laughs> there's humour in Agatha Christie and it's light. The thing about them, about the books, is as though there's some there's some nasty things happening. You never feel, you feel really safe. You know it's going to resolve itself. Mm. You know that there'll be sort of a happy ending of sorts. And so it's like being you know sitting with a warm cup of hot chocolate and in a warm blanket yeah good trying the evil the bad guys caught yeah good hands safe hands it's a there's lovely normally, route yeah. read there's normally a couple that are being split up but then they can have a happy ending at the end i know there's a little bit of romance yeah. oh i mean you know that we all need room for this i mean i love you know i love dark novels and i love challenging novels but equally mm. sometimes i just like a lovely easy safe comfortable read and that is what agatha christie is to me yeah, I can I completely agree. And uh, so, touching on books which have very famous adaptions, you've gone for your all time favorite book, um, and I'll let you talk about that. And then we talk about the the famous adaption of it, I suppose. Howard's End, um, E.M. Forster. It's a so, book that I fell in love with at school. Mm. I did have to read it. It was one of my A level texts. Actually, it was the best essay I've ever written. Um, because I love the book so much mm. so I wrote this book and it, I felt this book you know really kind of big beating heart so I wrote this essay and my teacher who I think she'd taken it home to mark over the holidays actually sent me a letter this is the day before emails to tell me how much she liked it before term began so I mean I didn't write many essays like that so it, obviously the book kind of um, set me off and it's got mm. some big themes um, there's a whole sort of thing about sexism and feminism in there. And obviously he was a male novelist, but he wrote female characters really well. And the Schlegel sisters are really interesting women, really strong, interesting women. And there's a lot about the march, the relentless march of capitalism mm. and the feeling that this lovely house, Howard's End, that the town is sort of encroaching, the city's getting, you know, it's going to eventually, you know, ruin that rural idyll. And you can feel that. And then um, this uh, this character, um, Leonard, um, who is um, a, a working class character who they sort of try to save and then royally mess up his life. Um, there is that sort of feeling about the damage that capitalism can cause. And also there's a, there's a thread of anti-colonialism in the book. There's lots of big issues to grapple with, but it's also a really good plot. And yes, let's talk about the, um, the famous film, the Merchant Ivory film. <laughs> I've actually never read um, the book version of this. I have seen the film um, and it's quite an old film now. It was made back in the early nineties, but uh, off the top of my head, the cast is just amazing. So there's Helena Bonham Carter, there's mm -hmm. Thompson, I think Anthony Hopkins might be in it. One he of is. the graves is also in it. There's like a the cast is amazing. But the no, cast is extraordinary. Know. If you haven't seen the film, see the film. Yeah. Um, it is a glorious, beautiful. I mean, Merchant Ivory always make them beautiful. But um, at the same time, Room with a View came out, I think, a couple of years before, and that is also yeah. Helena Bonham Carter and also no, amazing. Gorgeous, so yeah. romantic. <laughs> Watch it. Um, Howard's End, I suppose, yeah, it came out in the 90s when I was at school. Mm. Um, and so I watched it then and it was and is just um, quite stunning. It's like a painting almost. It's so how, how beautiful um, it is. But yeah, I think probably it just talked to me as a book. Um, the 
there isn't an enormous, I mean, given that the emotional teenager I was, there isn't a, an enormous grand romance in there. There's, there's, there's a couple of romances. One's a, one's a bit more kind of, oh, I think you'll do kind of thing. Mm. Um, um, but it was more about the way it looked at the world. And as a teenager, when I was asking big questions, especially about privilege, and I have always, I mean, I acknowledge my own privilege and, um, and I've always thought about that. And I really care about that. Um, so I, I, I admired how he tackled mm. that, how damaging um, the Schlegel sisters are in their attempts to sort of interfere and to bring someone up. Um, and so I just think, I suppose I don't have answers for any of the questions he raises. I just really admire the way he raises mm. them and the way he, he brings about an ending, which, and I won't give anything away, but it's sort of bittersweet. Mm. And, and if, do you think, um, should listeners, read the book or watch the film what order do you think they should do that in read the book first because there's all sorts of depth um the the famous line only connect the prose and the passion and um he's talking about um the prose the schlegels and the passion the other family the wilcoxes and and what happens when those two collide and the language he's such a clever writer so mm. you need to read he the is. book first so that you can underline if you if you dare to spoil books that way. And I do, I'm afraid. Sorry, everyone. But I do. And my copy has got lots of underlining. Um, uh, so do that and then watch the film um, with a, a hot chocolate and a big bag of crisps. <laughs> and then obviously listeners, some listeners will know that the Only Connect TV quiz programme with Victoria Corrin Mitchell is named after that. that yes, quote. yes. This so, big theme. Yeah. <laughs> Right, so they're your top five picks. If you had to pick one overall favourite, which one would you choose? Oh, oh dear, that is hard. Um, I, I think it would be Howard's End because I think I could probably read it many times and find something new in it because his writing is so is so mm. clever and, and there's always a, a new theme or a new statement about the state of the world or humanity that he's making on each page. Yeah. So, yeah, it would keep me going. No, I think, yeah, I think that's the biggest compliment you can give to someone's writing, that you can read it consistently and always find something new or something you hadn't seen before. Yeah, but and that sort of inspires me. I'm not, I'm not setting out to be as brilliant as E.M. Forster, but I do think if you, if, if when someone finishes a book, some, that you've talked about some stuff that matters in real life and people reflect on that, I think that's amazing. You know, um, we all, um, we can read for lots of different reasons, but, but um coming out of um, reading something and looking on the world in a slightly different way is, is a really big thing I think something I really hope I can do mm. well it's, it doesn't doesn't hurt to aim high you never know so, <laughs> on to the five quick fire questions question number one fiction or non-fiction oh fiction good choice good choice question number two how often do you finish a book oh about once every two weeks. I don't read as fast mm. as I would like. Um, I'm reading on Kindle at the moment, um, a couple of things. Um, reading The Body on the Island by uh, Victoria Dowd, I think it is. Mm. Um, and uh, I re I'm lucky that um, I get to read lots of books written by other debut novelists. So I'm, I'm working through a few. I'm about to read Louise Fine's The Hidden Child. That's my next read. So question number three, what's your favorite place to read? bed <laughs> and even in the middle of the day you know often, you'd be surprised how often that comes up as an answer 
Yeah, well, it's comfortable and warm and cosy and quiet. You know, when yeah. you're a parent, if you're anywhere else, they're running around, the kids, and they all want something. Whereas if I'm, if I sort of say I'm going up for a nap and I go up to bed and have a read instead, you know, that's great. That's private and quiet. <laughs> Question number four, do you have a favourite independent bookshop? I do. Um, it's the Cobham Bookshop, um, which is actually my closest indie um, and I, I have to say, I think independent bookshops are just such, I mean, bookshops are magic places anyway, oh, but independent so bookshops where, where bookshop owners are able to really, you know, kind of um, choose their own things and champion the books that they particularly mm. like. And um, I, and also they're just, you know, all those lie, there's stories waiting to be discovered um, in a bookshop. I mean, it's just an awesome way to spend an hour or two, isn't it? I think. Yeah. No, oh, I completely agree. And I've done so much vigorous nodding this podcast episode, but I completely agree. So the final question, which you have kind of touched on before, what's the book you're most looking forward to reading next? Yes, yeah, so my, um, uh, I'm lucky to call her a friend, actually, Louise Fine, um, who wrote People Like Us, which came out last year, which is a really emotional and touching World War II story told from an unusual perspective of a um a German woman who um, actually um, is, is from a family who support Hitler and she falls in love with a Jew, a family friend. So it's uh, a really interesting perspective and uh, actually does a lot to, mm. quite, it's quite worrying now we sort of ended up with um, popular, popular sort of um, personality politics and people sort of falling for lines hook line and sinker and not questioning enough and I think the reflections now on what and that sort of um situation in Germany with the rise of Hitler so I think it was really interesting the way she did that and the second book is The Hidden Child mm. um which um is being published in September and I'm I'm getting a proof copy so I'm looking forward to reading that it's always a privilege to read an advanced copy of someone else's mm. work especially when I know how beautifully she writes so well, there are two great recommendations and I hope our readers go out and, and pre-order them, I guess. And obviously pre-order your lovely book, which is coming out on the 5th of August, 2021. So in, yes. in less than a month. Are you excited? Yeah, I'm really excited. It doesn't feel real. It's been um, the way publishing works. It's been 18 months since I signed the, the contract. So it's a long, slow period with not much happening. And things happen, you know, very occasionally. Um, and it will feel probably like I'm not actually me on the day it happens that I'm out outside of that experience looking yeah. on going whoa <laughs> yeah I am you can probably are tell you, are you planning a big party yeah you know actually restrictions will will be gone by then um yes, for the, so uh, in-person book launch is being planned for the weekend of August the 7th um and I'm really looking forward to that I've ordered a cake feels like a wedding got a dress book my nails in so <laughs> oh, yes because there's going to be so many pictures of you holding the book so I see why you that's right nails. no that's right good have nice nails I, I don't usually get my nails done but I feel like it's probably one of those moments and um I mean how often do you launch your debut novel you know once so yeah, exactly determined to make them hopefully you'll have many book launches to come I hope so I'm, I'm already working on my third book so yeah fingers crossed your third book oh mm. oh yeah because you mentioned Grace so next uh, are you going to continue the theme of girls names uh yes uh the third book is penciled in as mercy uh, it's, uh, uh yeah it's set in a uh, women's prison oh 
Okay, yeah. interesting. Right, well, we look forward to patience <laughs> and grace and mercy, hopefully, in the next <laughs> couple of years. Uh, it's been lovely to speak to you. Thank you so much for making time for me and your, your great choices. Uh, like I said, I've been nodding vigorously along the whole time. <laughs> I'm really glad you agree with me. I was quite nervous, you know, picking these, you know, these few books out of all the amazing books you've read. You just mm. don't know. And it feels like it defines me a bit, which, yes, it probably... Yeah, I felt like pressure. Hopefully I'm chosen. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Victoria. No problem. <laughs>